Acts 3, 1 through 10. And this story of a lame beggar healed follows right on the tail of last week's passage in Acts 2 that showed what the early Christian community looked like. Pastor Harrison shared about how it was a community characterized by generous devotion, generous giving, and generous growth. And what's really exciting about this story is it's a direct example of two of those. In Acts 3, we see generous devotion on the part of Peter and John as they passionately go out into their community and are devoted to Jesus in the midst of all the people. And we see generous growth as a lame beggar is healed, and then later we see uh, how hundreds, if not thousands, came to believe because of his being healed. So let's read this passage and hear what the Lord has to teach us today. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a great encouragement to us in difficult times. And we pray that you would speak to us right now through your word, through this sermon. Teach us what you want us to hear and help us to grow in our desire to follow you in our daily lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite movies growing up was the movie Aladdin, which if you're not familiar with, you need to correct that immediately and go watch it later this week. The movie Aladdin is a great story about a street urchin who grows up on the streets of uh, his town, Agrabah, and his beloved little companion, Abu, the monkey. Aladdin and Abu survive into almost adulthood by the quick wits that they have and the quicker hands that they have in stealing apples. And Aladdin is just barely surviving as he goes about his life. Aladdin meets Princess Jasmine who comes out of her uh, father, the Sultan's palace, to see what the average person in Agrabah lives like and he falls in love with her but he knows that he's just a street rat. There's no way he could ever win this princess's heart. Through a couple different circumstances, he meets the evil Jafar, who is the Sultan's vizier, his advisor, and Jafar has plots and schemes that he wants to take control of the kingdom. He wants to use Aladdin to get a magical lamp from the Cave of Wonders, and this lamp has a genie that will grant three wishes. So Aladdin goes into the cave and Jafar betrays him and tries to kill him after he's gotten the lamp for him. But Aladdin survives and his trusty monkey Abu sneaks the lamp back and Aladdin's the one who gets the lamp and gets the wishes. When I was a kid, I imagined what it would be like if I had that lamp. What would I ask for if I had three wishes? 
what would you ask for if you had three wishes and you could get almost anything with them? Would you ask for money? Would you ask for success? Would you ask for love? Hopefully you wouldn't ask for power and control like Jafar. Maybe you would ask for the ability to change how people perceived you like Aladdin wanted. Maybe you would ask to be freed from the shackles that chain you and limit you like the genie. What would you ask for? This man in the story had most likely an impossible wish. He, it maybe never even entered his mind that he could be freed from the crippling physical disability that he had, his lameness. We read later on in, in Acts that he was lame for 40 years from birth, every day unable to go where he wanted to without somebody helping him. It's only October, uh, but in our household, we've already received two magazines in the mail that are what we call Christmas gift magazines, one from Amazon Prime and one from Target. Thank you so much. I'm really glad that we've received them, Amazon and Target. My kids are going wild, already planning out what they're going to get for Christmas, the gifts that they're excited to receive, the desire for the new, the unimaginable, the exciting which drives my kids to spend 30 minutes in a row looking at one of these gift catalogs. This desire is the same desire that drove Aladdin. It's the same desire that drives Jafar and Genie in the movies. It's a drive that all of us can identify with, a desire to change our circumstances, a desire to get out of what is struggling and making it difficult. Maybe it would surprise you to know that the theme of the gift of God is actually quite prevalent in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the word grace is the same as the word gift. In Romans 6.23, Paul writes to the Romans, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In our passage today, we see how Peter and John give an unnamed man a gift beyond his wildest wishes. And as we see this story unfold, we're going to explore the question, what does the church have to give the world? What does the church have to give the world? And we're gonna see it through three main points. What we think we need, what we really need, and what we need to give. So first, what we think we need. In verse one to two, we see Peter and John going up to the temple in the afternoon at the hour of prayer. While they're going to the temple, they come to the beautiful gate, which most likely was this gorgeous gate covered in Corinthian bronze and was just absolutely breathtaking to behold, which is why they called it the beautiful gate. But as they're going there, they come and they see a man lame from birth, unable to walk on his own. The man is there to beg, to ask for alms. He has been carried there by friends or maybe people who he paid a small amount of money to get him there. And this was most likely his favorite spot, his accustomed spot to beg. This man had no other way to make his living, no other way to provide for himself. He was crippled, lame unable to even walk. This was before modern hospitals, before wheelchairs, most likely before crutches even were something that people regularly had access to. This man had no recourse to provide for himself except for begging. So this man is there, he's asking for alms, and he's at a perfect spot going into the temple as people are going to be before God and worship him. In the Jewish religion of Jesus, Peter, and John's day, people considered almsgiving, giving to the poor and the needy, to be a meritorious, religiously beneficial act. 
People thought that if they gave to those in need, God would look on them with more pleasure. And so, of course, the man is there to ask and beg. What would it have been like to be lame in the first century? Jews were kind of extraordinary in the world at that time in that they kept all of their children. It was very common in ancient Rome, Roman Empire, for people to abandon unwanted children. They would put them outside of their house, and sometimes people would come along and adopt them, but more often they would simply expire and die. It was even more likely if the person had a physical deformity for them to be abandoned because that person, that child, when it grew up, could not provide for the family or for itself. But Jews were extraordinary in that they did not abandon any of their children. They kept all of them. However, though that is the case, the Jewish people thought at the time, and it's accounted for in the Gospels, that anybody that had sickness, disease, or a physical disability had that because of their own personal sin. So this lame beggar not only had a physical deformity, but he was looked down upon by the rest of society because it was something he had done to deserve that physical disability. He had to rely on the kindness of others to even get to the temple grounds, and our story shows him as a completely unnamed individual. So he sees Peter and John coming into the temple. He catches their eyes, and he looks at them, expecting to receive something. And Peter simply says, I have no silver and gold. This man was 40 years old, lame from birth, entirely reliant on others. He, if anything, was desperate in need. He felt that his real need was to get money to provide for his day-to-day necessities like food, shelter, clothing. And this is just one example of a whole biblical witness that shows us that the human tendency is to be anxious and worried about our day-to-day needs. In the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that Jesus most likely preached multiple times throughout his public ministry, in Matthew 6, 25, Jesus identifies this anxiety about our needs. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? At the very end of that passage, he says in verse 31, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. In this sermon, Jesus identifies for the watching crowds that it is normal part of human life in a broken and sinful world to be anxious and worried about our daily needs. That's normal. It happens. But he calls us, humanity, to something different, a reliance on the Father. See, we are creatures who focus on the day-to-day. Our pressing immediate needs often take precedent over everything else. We live our daily lives focused on what we think we need. Of course, these daily needs are important, especially if you live in a part of the world where we don't have the abundance of resources that we do here in America. Sin has broken our world, and the result is that people have to struggle for food, for clothing, for shelter, for other things. So when we approach the question of what does the church have to give the world, we should first realize that the greatest gift that the church has to give the world is not a solution to our pressing daily needs our necessities, food, shelter. That's not what the church has to offer as its best gift. Yes, we can help and we should help with those things, 
but that is not the greatest gift we have to offer. An interesting story that illustrates this was when Thomas Aquinas, a famous medieval Christian theologian, met with Pope Innocent, the leader of the Roman Catholic Church at the time, at a point where the Roman Catholic Church was at the height of its power and height of its wealth, Thomas met with Pope Innocent. And Pope Innocent was in a room surrounded by stacks of money, gold and silver jewels, and he was counting the money. And the Pope said to Thomas, you see, the church can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. Thomas replied, true, Holy Father, neither can she say now to anyone, rise and walk. In this small interaction, Thomas was pointing out to the Pope that even though the church was at the height of its power with more wealth than Peter and John could ever imagine, they were lifeless, powerless to impact people in any real sense with the spiritual message that we all desperately need. The reality is that our wealth, both individually and corporately sometimes as churches, blinds us to ours and others' ultimate need. We invest too much significance in the temporary, the day-to-day. We focus on those needs because they are pressing, immediate. We believe that money, success, a comfortable life will satisfy us, that these things will keep the problems that sin causes at arm's length. They won't. All people in this world will face trials and struggles brought about by sin. Doesn't matter if you're the most successful individual, doesn't matter if you have millions in the bank. It doesn't matter if you are as comfortable as you can be. You will face difficulties, trials, and struggles. I'm not dismissing the fact that we're all going to face very real needs and trials or that we live in a world where people around us, especially during this time of the COVID pandemic, are facing very real needs and trials. That is true. Financial troubles, health crises, relational conflicts, lack of food, shelter, clothing, all of this is real issues that we have to face and that we, the church, should be helping with. But if these problems are resolved, every single individual will still have a greater, more pressing need, one that we touched on at the beginning, the fact that all of us have earned a wage for our sin and that that wage is death. Even Jesus, as he healed the sick, never forgot that his primary mission and purpose wasn't to bring physical health to all the individuals surrounding him. In Mark 1, after a huge day filled with healing the multitudes of their sicknesses and demon possession, Jesus went away at night while all of his disciples were asleep. He went away to the mountains and prayed. And the next morning, Peter and the disciples searched and searched, and they found him. They said, what are you doing, Lord? What are you doing? Why are you here? There's so many people in the town waiting for you. And Jesus said, let us go to the next town, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. In John 10.10, preaching to the crowds, Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. He didn't come merely to meet our pressing physical needs. He came to give us true life. So that's why our greatest problem and need is that we have earned a wage of eternal death and separation from God. We have a death sentence hanging over us. And that's why we turn to our second point, what we really need. And in verse 6, we see Peter say to that lame beggar, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
and immediately the man is healed, miraculously so. See, miracles performed throughout the Bible are always to attest to the gospel. Jesus performed his miracles so that people would know he had the power and authority to forgive sins. In Acts, Jesus performs miracles through his disciples so that people will listen to the message of who he is and what he has done. Randy Alcorn, an author in his book, Heaven, says Jesus' miracles provide us with a sample of the meaning of redemption, a freeing of creation from the shackles of sin and evil, and a reinstatement of creaturely living as intended by God. In Matthew 9, when Jesus heals a paralytic, he says directly to the Pharisees, I'm doing this so you know that I have the authority and power to forgive sins. So Peter heals this lame man, not merely because he had this desperate need of physical disability, but because he wanted this man and the watching crowds to have their ultimate need addressed, the eternal death sentence that was hanging over them. So later on in the story, we see that after the man is healed, the crowds in the temple are amazed and stand in awe of who Jesus is and what he has done. And Peter proclaims to the crowds who this Jesus is and how it's Jesus who has provided this healing. In verse 16, Peter says, and in Jesus's name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all. And in that speech, Peter goes on and calls the watching crowds to turn from their sins, to repent and believe in Jesus as their savior. Miracles are a sign of the powerful, wonderful, sin-reversing restoration that the gospel brings. Jesus came to bring that sin-reversing, transformative restoration. That's what we really need. That's what each one of us desperately needs. A healing that is not just our physical bodies, but impacts our spiritual, emotional, and moral lives as well. That's why in Romans 6.23 it says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is sin? We confessed it earlier. Sin is missing the mark. God has a perfect, beautiful standard that he calls each and every human to live up to. Not because he's a dictator and wants to force us into a mold, but because that beautiful standard is what we were created for and the way true life and happiness can be found. Each and every one of us has fallen short of that standard. And the result is that we have earned death, spiritual separation for eternity from God, our creator. But salvation has been provided by faith in Jesus Christ, the free gift of life. Jesus died in our place for our sins so that now we don't have to. God is a holy, righteous God, and so he must demand justice for sin. But he is a loving, merciful, gracious God, so Jesus himself died in our place for our sins. So what does the church have to give to the world? They have the gospel of Jesus' salvation, this free gift of life. That's what they have to offer. That's what we have to offer to the world. And this gospel of salvation brings hope. It brings transformation because it is not something that merely addresses the temporary day-to-day -day needs we each face. It addresses our eternal need, something that will last forever. What we really need 
is an eternal restoration to the right relationship with our Heavenly Father, the relationship we were created for but have been separated from because of our sins. When we think of eternity, it's always, it's been so impactful for me since I was a new Christian, only a couple months into becoming a Christian, to think of eternity as an unending line that goes from where I am now off into the distant future. It's a line that could go for millions, trillions of miles out into space and it would have no end, and that would be eternity. And it could go extend behind me, trillions and millions of miles unending in the other direction. And if I were to think of eternity as that line, and I were to think of my life, my life would be a small, almost unimaginable dot on that line. My life on this earth is a small, almost insignificant dot on that unending line. On the one hand, that dot has immense importance for the rest of the line, because it's in that life that we choose or reject Jesus as our Savior. On the other hand, that dot is minuscule and of un, not un, <laughs> of complete unimportance in the scheme of things, because that dot, all the success, the wealth, the claim that we get in that life cannot be carried on into eternity. We need to have an eternal perspective when it comes to the life that we're living here and now. As Christians, we've experienced that transformative power of the gospel that this lame beggar experienced. We have tasted the future long-for hope of eternity in the here and now. We look forward to a day with no more sin, no more tears, no more brokenness. That's what the hope is, the eternal perspective that we have. And it should impact our every single moment of every single day. It should impact how we use our finances. Every dollar we have is a gift from the Lord. It's not something that we've earned and deserved. It's something he's entrusted with us, uh, us with as a steward. Am I using it in a manner that he would want, my financial resources? And am I using them in a manner that he would be pleased with? I'm a steward of what he has given me. Every single cent that we spend can be used to have an eternal impact. And I'm not just talking about giving to the church. I'm not just talking about our tithes and our offerings, even though that's important and we're commanded to do that. I'm talking about the companies we invest in. I'm talking about joyfully using our money to be hospitable to our neighbors, our friends, our fellow church members. I'm talking about giving unexpected gifts to those in need. Every single dollar we have should be used with eternity in mind. The eternal perspective I'm talking about should impact how we shop as consumers, the companies we buy from, the products we purchase. Have we thought about if they are being produced in an ethical manner or if they're being produced in a factory where people are oppressed and have no hope of a joyful life that we enjoy? This eternal perspective should impact how we entertain ourselves. The TVs we're watching, the movies we're watching, the music we listen to, are they glorifying violence, sex, or are they glorifying God? This eternal perspective should impact how we love others. Do we view every single person we come into contact with as a person created in God's image, desperately in need of salvation? Every single time we interact with anyone, we're interacting with a person who will exist forever, either in heaven or in hell. This eternal perspective should impact how we interact with others in our relationships, our marriage, our parenting, our friendship, our neighbors. Everything should be done in light of the fact 
that we are interacting with eternal beings who will exist forever. One way you can spiritually diagnose this is to ask the question, what are you praying for? Are you merely praying for the temporary, the immediate needs, or are you praying for something more? For example, are you, if you're going through financial troubles, if you're struggling to make ends meet, are you praying just for money to pay the bills? Or are you praying for contentment with what God has provided for you in the here and now? If you're going through relational strife, maybe you're fighting with your spouse. Do you pray for your spouse to be changed? Or do you pray that you can sacrificially love your spouse and accept them for who they are in the moment? This applies to other relational conflict as well, or even more difficult in crises of health. Are you praying for healing in the here and now and then feel incredibly disappointed when healing does not come? I had the great privilege of, along with a number of our other elders, to go to a family's home a couple of days ago and pray with a young brother who is struggling with a sickness that he's been praying for months to be relieved from. And he has not had relief yet. And it was heartbreaking to see. But at the same time, I was so encouraged by this family, by this young man, as they shared the things they are thankful for in the midst of this trial, of the ways that they had people in the hospital thanking them for their joy and their hope. That's the type of thing I'm talking about. This family has an eternal perspective so that even though their prayers for healing have not yet been answered, they're filled with joy and hope that the world cannot explain and understand. Maybe you have not trusted in Jesus in this way. Maybe you have not experienced this transformative power of the gospel that I'm talking about. If you have not trusted in him, then I invite you to. I encourage you to know that Jesus has died for your sins so that you don't have to take that wage of death upon yourself. All you have to do now is accept that free gift to believe in Jesus. So we see that we desperately need salvation from sin and death. That is what we truly need beyond what we think we need in the moment-to-moment days. This salvation is only in the name of Jesus Christ, who died in our place for our sins. And by faith in him, we can have that salvation and that eternal hope. But when we believe in it, that's not the end of the story. We are saved to live lives of other-centered sacrifice, to live on the mission of God that God wants us to be a part of. That's why we need to also give to others, And in our final point, we see a beautiful illustration in this passage of what the church has to give to the world. Very quickly, first we see that preeminently the church has Jesus to give to the world. Peter didn't come with silver and gold for that lame beggar. He came with Jesus. And it transformed that guy's life and then hundreds and thousands of lives in the next couple of days and hours. In verse 4, we see also that Peter and John had to give a sense of dignity and value and worth to this lame beggar that other people did not have because Peter looked at the man and saw him as a person created in God's image. And we see that as in verse 4, it says he directed his gaze at him as did John. It said, look at us. And then it says in verse 5 that the man fixed his attention on them. All of these words of looking are there for a purpose. It's to emphasize the importance 
of this man as a person created in God's image and the fact that Peter and John valued him. This is something the rest of the world does not have to give. The church emphasizes that all people are preeminently valuable and worthy of dignity and love. And that's why we give the gospel to everybody, regardless of background. And uh, the third thing we have to give to the world is transformative healing. We see that in verse six and seven as the man is completely transformed from a lame beggar to somebody who's immediately jumping and praising God, completely healed. Here, the example is physical healing, but I'm talking about spiritual, emotional, moral healing as well. Complete transformation from the old man to the new. The fourth thing we see in this passage that the church has to give is joy. This guy was transformed from somebody laying on the side of the road begging to meet his needs to somebody who was leaping and praising God, entering the temple for most likely the first time, praising God with all of his heart. This world is an incredibly difficult place. There's so many desperate things going on that should make us, if we didn't have the hope of the gospel, depressed, lonely, suicidal, filled with sorrow. But the church has joy to give to the world because we have the true hope of salvation from all those things. The final thing in this passage we see that the church has to give is wonder and amazement about who God is. In verse 9 and 10, we see that the watching crowd see this man leaping and praising God, and they're amazed. The church should be a place where the watching world sees what's going on, see how God's working, and is just blown away. So what does the church have to give the world? It has to give Jesus, which brings transformation, which brings joy, which brings wonder and amazement. God wants to use the church to give something to the world, just as he used Peter to give something to this lame beggar. He wants to use each one of us in people's lives. It wasn't because Peter was eloquent. It wasn't because Peter was successful. It wasn't because Peter was charismatic or had a big personality. It was simply because Peter had Jesus to give. That's why God used Peter. Today, uh, tomorrow, is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And as I was preparing, preparing this sermon, I was reminded of a pastor in China who has been a great encouragement to me. His name is Pastor Wang Yi. He is the pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church. He's a pastor of a, a, a relatively large house church, and he used to be a, 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 a lawyer in China in the early 2000s before he became a Christian in 2005 and then eventually became a pastor. Back in 2018, he and 100 members of his church were arrested in December 2018 and imprisoned. He was held without a trial, which of course is very common in China, but he was held without a trial. And then in December 2019, right before everything happened with the coronavirus, he was sentenced to nine years in imprisonment, as well as confiscation of almost all of his worldly possessions. He has a wife, children, who are without daddy for at least the next nine or 10 years. Before he was captured and put in prison, he wrote a letter that his church released a couple of days after his imprisonment. I encourage you to go and read the entire letter, Pastor Wang Yi from Early Rain Covenant Church, but a couple of things that stuck out to me in this letter was exactly what we're talking about, an eternal perspective that he had, the transformative power of the gospel that he wants everybody in China and the world to hear. 
He writes, all actions of the church are efforts to prove to the world the true existence of another world. The Bible teaches us that we can only obey God and not obey people in matters concerning the gospel and human conscience. Therefore, I disobey the government and I patiently endure as a witness of another world and another glorious king. All the missions that God has given me are through all my actions so that more Chinese people understand that the hope of mankind and society lies only in the redemption of Jesus Christ and the supernatural grace of God. As we come today to practice the Lord's Supper, we're reminded exactly of what Pastor Wang Yi has told us. We are representatives of the fact that there's another world that exists, a supernatural spiritual world where all the rights caused by sin will be undone, where we will be finally restored and redeemed to a right relationship with the Father. The Lord's Supper should remind us of God's salvation and the joyful eternity that awaits us. The body and the blood remind us that Jesus died in our place, took our sins, the wages that we earned, and have given us the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. The Lord's Supper is a family meal, and so it is for those who have believed, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you are here today and you have not believed, then I'm so thankful that you are here. But we encourage you to not take the meal. We don't want you to do something that is not genuine of you, but we invite you to come and talk with us afterwards or with the person that you came with. I'll pray, I, I, this time I'd like to invite the elders forward. Um, I'll pray and then I'll explain how we're gonna take um, the Lord's Supper. Father God, we thank you so much that you have given us a means by which to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith. We thank you that you died in our place. You took the wage of sin, sin the death that we earned so that we did not have to. You've restored us to a right relationship with you so that we can once again be restored and redeemed into your presence. We thank you that our sins are washed away and we are forgiven. We confess, Lord God, that this week, this day, we have most likely sinned against you and against others. We confess our sins and turn from them. We don't want anything to do with them anymore, Lord. We thank you that your supper is a meal that reminds us that we are forgiven and redeemed and have new life. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.